0: Everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week we're very pleased to have Joel Lewis on the show and we'll be talking about his illuminating new book Youth Against Fascism: Young Communists in Britain and the United States, 1919 to 1939. You've probably heard of appeasement You know, the Spanish Civil War, the Nazi Anschluss, uh, Neville Chamberlain, Peace in Our Time, that kind of thing. Uh, It was a moment in which the Western democracies or the leadership of the Western democracies sort of fell down on the job. They didn't take fascism and Nazism as seriously as they should have. And in particular, they did not believe what Adolf Hitler was pretty plainly telling them. For this, they are rightly castigated. But everyone wasn't fooled, as Joel points out in this book. Communist and socialist organizations were, so to say, on top of fascism very early and recognized it for the threat that it was. One of the things that they did was they mobilized youth groups to fight against fascism. Joel tells the fascinating tale of this effort on the part of the international communist and socialist movement to try to make the Western democracies aware of the dire threat that fascism posed to them. Um, They ultimately did not succeed, which is unfortunate. But nonetheless, they should receive credit for what they did, and Joel gives it to them in this fascinating book. I enjoyed talking to him today, and I hope that you enjoy the interview. It'll be coming up in a second. But before I present it to you, I would like to ask a favor New Books in History is supported by the Department of History at the University of Iowa. Uh, They employ me and also by publishers all over the world who send me books. And these two patrons, so to say, like to know that the uh, show is being listened to. So I'd like to ask you, if you are on Facebook, if you could become a friend of New Books in History. All you do is go to Facebook and search for New Books in History and then become a friend of the show. And that way I can um, show both the people here at the university and the publishers who send me these books, that there are a lot of people interested in this show, and they should continue to support it. So anyway, thank you very much. I I appreciate it. Uh, And here's the interview with Joel Lewis. Hi, Joel.
1: Hey, Marshall. How are you doing, Sam?
0: I'm very well. Where are you exactly? You're in Michigan, is that correct?
1: Um, Yep. I'm at Saginaw Valley State University uh, in Michigan here. It's over in the Tri-City area. Um, Saginaw Flint.
0: I used to live in uh, Ann Arbor. Uh, I told your friend Robert, actually, and colleague, um, who suggested that I have you on the show. Thank you, Robert. Um, That I actually miss Michigan quite a bit this time of year because of the fruit that you guys have. Oh, the fruit here is amazing. Yeah, you have the, it's it's like a secret. People in America don't know this, but when I lived in Michigan every spring and summer, there was just an incredible bounty of wonderful fruit. We don't get that in Iowa. Yeah. We have have corn, and it's not even uh, designed for humans to eat. (laughs) <laughs> so anyway, I should tell our listeners we have Joel Lewis on the show today and um, we will be talking about his book Youth Against Fascism um, Young Communists in Britain and the United States uh, 1919 to 1939 uh, as, as I've told Joel, this is um, a topic that, that fascinates me uh, primarily because in the circles that I began to ran in, run in in my, uh, in, my, in my 20s and 30s I would occasionally run into red diaper babies <laughs> and uh, you know, I had grown up in Kansas, and we didn't have any of them there. But I met some of them on the East and West Coast, and I always kind of wondered, you know, what um, environs they had grown up in. And and really, um, Joel does a terrific job of uh, talking about their parents' generation, really, um, wow. and um, and kind of uh, how they uh, how they attempted to negotiate. Um, communism in, in, in two very inhospitable places for communism that is Britain and the United States so um, it's, a, it's a terrific book I, I really enjoyed it um, and I suggest uh, anybody uh, sh- who's interested in this topic should go out and read it um, but Joel let me uh, ask you to begin with to tell us a little bit about yourself that is where you grew up and where you went to school and that kind of thing
1: well uh, off the bat here thank you so much for your uh, kind words i'm not sure if this uh, manuscript necessarily deserves this as I'm kind like of word it a as lot. Given, i like you know, it a lot i, I guess it. we're always our, <laughs> i guess we're always our own worst critics here um no as uh, i'm actually yeah, i sort of neat here teaching at Saginaw Valley State University. I uh, was originally born in Flint, Michigan mm-hmm. and uh, grew up here in the Central Michigan area. Um, grew up in Mount, Ple- Mount Pleasant, Michigan where I uh, went to CMU all the way from undergrad through PhD so uh, it's, it's neat having a chance here to uh, still be in this area and still mm-hmm. teach in this area having yeah, grown up here.
0: Yeah they must love you there at CMU. That's Central Michigan University for those of you yep. who don't know. Yeah and so how did you become interested in history?
1: Uh, it's actually a it's a it's a long and bizarre story, but um, do the, tell. The, the, <laughs> to get to the chase of it here, my uh, my mother was a high school history teacher, uh-huh. and if anyone had told me when I was growing up that I'd be a historian someday, I just would have laughed at them. <laughs> when I when I went to university, I was uh, planning on being a double major in uh, theater and music, mm-hmm. and uh, somehow <laughs> somehow ended up not there. Uh, it was quite funny actually. I initially hadn't planned on going to university at all. Mm-hmm. Um I had planned on most like most uh working class kids who don't know about uh, scholarships and financial aid, I had planned on going into the military. Uh mm-hmm. I lucked out right before I was about to sign up for the Air Force, uh, Central Michigan offered me a uh, full ride oh, academic wow. scholarship. That's so, great. That's great. <laughs> yep, I I was already to sign the papers with the recruiter, so wow. um got bailed out on that and uh No, it's uh, it's been a long and fascinating trip for me. The main thing that got me interested in history um, was actually my own love of music, my own love of folk music. Uh, Mm -hmm. For years, I had been a huge fan of uh, folk music and had always said that I didn't like history until my mom pointed out to me one day that uh, folk music is really oral history and Mm -hmm. that I just didn't necessarily like reading the textbooks. So that was what convinced me uh, to become interested in history uh but my main thing that switched me over to be a history major was uh when I was 19 I took a course on uh Nazi Germany and the Holocaust at mm-hmm. Central Michigan University and I've been a uh hooked on studying themes of fascism and anti-fascism ever since.
0: Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. That's interesting you mentioned folk music. Um, I promised I wouldn't do this and mention all these specific names but you know who Alan Lomax is? Oh yes. Indeed. He just died recently didn't he? Did, Did just he? the other day I think. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> for those of you who follow kind of folk music and, and, and that sort of thing I, I know that I was a fan of Alan Lomax back in the day. Um, so yeah that's I was. I real think tragedy. He, I believe he just I believe he just passed. I could be totally wrong about that. I don't know why I'm saying uh-huh. that but I, I, believe, I believe that's true. So then who did you work with in graduate school? Who was your advisor? Uh, my
1: main advisor in graduate school, I had two main advisors. Uh, one was uh, Jim Schmieken, who has got to be the most kind and warm and welcoming man I've ever gotten a chance to work with. Absolutely great
0: individual. Uh, uh, oh, that was my it, undergraduate advisor.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. <laughs> no, Jim, Jim's main interest was in, uh, was in British urban and labor history. And my mm-hmm. other advisor was uh, Eric Johnson, uh, who specialized in uh, Nazi Germany in particular, trying to Look at aspects of Nazi terror. Um, mm-hmm. So, by combining those two together as advisors, um, this is the final project that ended up coming out. I uh, was interested in British history, interested in things with fascism, and uh, somehow ended up um, doing this book in the
0: end. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is something of an unusual topic. I mean, it, it's not as if uh, the, um, the Young Communist League, under its various titles, is something very many people know about. How did you learn about it to begin with?
1: It was actually just dumb luck me stumbling across anything with the Young Communist League. Uh, My initial Ph.D. research had absolutely nothing to do with the YCL. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Uh, I'd actually gone on a research trip over to uh, Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, My initial topic for my Ph.D. dissertation was supposed to be on uh, folk music during the Popular Front era. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was sitting in the archive um, reading through some stuff on folk music one day and this wonderful archivist came out uh, named Audrey Canning. and she brought an unpublished manuscript about the British Young Communist League and said, mm-hmm. there's some stuff about folk music in there. Why don't you take a peek? Um, and I sat there all afternoon and read this dissertation by uh, Mike Waite and became absolutely fascinated mm-hmm. with Young Communists and mm-hmm. uh, have been trying to write their story ever since.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it is a very compelling story. I should tell people that because these people struggled against extraordinarily long odds and you know they had the benefit of being totally right about fascism <laughs> um, so you know as i say in my write up for the interview we should give credit where credit is due and you know uh there was a thing uh, appeasement but they they didn't do it <laughs> yeah so they they certainly deserve credit for that so uh, why don't we launch into a, a discussion of the, the book itself then um um t- tell me uh, uh t- tell me about the origins of the uh Let's just call it the Young Communist League because it has various names okay. throughout. So uh, tell me about the origins of the Young Communist League in Britain and the United States.
1: Uh, well, really the origins of the, the movement in general internationally um, has to do with the uh, Socialist Youth International prior to World War I. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the unique things about the youth movement, something I've tried to keep in perspective of looking at these multiple generations, uh, really has to do with the key themes of uh, peace and war. Uh, one of the unique things about the Socialist Youth International in Europe prior to the war and during, during World War I, uh, is that they are the main organization in the Second International in 1915 that comes out completely en masse against the war mm-hmm. uh, and starting to form a very early relationship uh, with the Bolshevik Movement uh, mm-hmm. through some of the peace initiatives going on in 1915. Uh, mm-hmm. And in terms of when the Communist International is founded after the Russian Revolution, uh, the Socialist Youth International is the only group left over from the Second International that switches completely over to embracing communism. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was a unique aspect about the youth. Uh, most of what happened with adult movements, both and the United States and Europe was extreme factionalism and splits within the socialist movement. Mm-hmm. But you had the entire youth movement uh, embracing communism in 1919 officially.
2: So mm-hmm. Uh,
1: mm-hmm. I thought it was a, quite a compelling story. Uh, not only looking at how young people reacted against World War One, but also seeing World War Two looming on the horizon and how they uh, shaped their politics still around issues of war and peace.
0: Mm-hmm. Just to take one step back, my, my impression, is not being an expert on it, is that. Uh, World War One really broke the left apart in a sense that one thing that I do remember is that the German Social Democratic Party, the SPD, um, voted... For Germany to enter the war, or voted for to fund the war, and this caused a split within the European Socialist Movement. Am I remembering that right?
1: Ve- very much so. Uh, there was only one member of the SPD who didn't support the war, and that was uh, Karl Liebknecht, uh, yeah. who was actually the the official head of the Socialist Youth International, and that's mm-hmm. one of the reasons why. The socialist. He was really stuck to the anti-war platform early on. Had a lot to do with the leadership of uh, Karl Liebknecht, uh, both before and after the war.
0: Mm-hmm. And then he and then he founds the, uh, the KPD, the KPD, uh, yep. the, the, the German Communist Party. Yes, yeah, yes, I remember this well. So then, in 1917, when the uh, the Bolsheviks take power in Russia, um, they they found. Uh, I happen to know this. They found the Komsomol, which is the Young Communist uh, uh, League, um, in um, in Russia is is the uh, what is the initial relationship between the the Komsomol and the the um the Young Communist League because I did some searching around the web and that that what people seem to say that um the the uh, Young Communist League was patterned on or even um m- m- modeled on the uh the the Komsomol is that true
1: um, it, it's true to a certain extent yes and no I mean if you look at the first couple of years of the Communist International, uh, especially with the founding of the Young Communist International. Um, The first couple years of the movement are really a period of chaos and flux in the first period. Uh, Much of what's going on, particularly if you look at Western parties, both in the United States and in Great Britain, of the Young Communist Movement, is they perceive that they're modeling themselves uh, after the Soviet Soviet Consummo. But not really having a full understanding of exactly what the role is to become small is playing. Uh, much of what the youth are trying to do in both the United States and Britain is really trying to play what I would call a vanguard role early mm-hmm. on. Uh, perceiving of themselves as the real revolutionary vanguard of uh, international communism and being the youth trying to lead the adults in terms of new politics uh, and it's a real problem. The first couple of years of trying to understand exactly what's going on with the communist movement in the Soviet Union, in particular, trying to understand exactly what this new Communist International entails. Um, there's a number of people that I think, in early to on, that are supporting this that don't have a full conception of exactly what they're getting themselves into in terms <laughs> of the organizational structure.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, is it the case then that the what? was it the after the formation of the 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 um common turn um this is in 1917 1918 which is kind of the third international i guess i don't really yes. yes um was it the case that the um the the communist party uh, of of the united states and of britain i guess there was some factionalism but let's just speak of them as whole entities uh, were they under the command or direction of the um russian communist party
1: um once again, it's a pretty complex story there. Uh, I would say yes and no, all at the same time. I'm part of the problem of trying to understand, a particularly the relationship with Western parties. Uh, oftentimes, when people try and study the relationship with the common term, they assume that since the common term made a dictate, that this dictate came straight down and that people followed it to mm-hmm. uh, so it's a complete letter and word. Uh, in terms of communication and actually being able to enforce their dictates. Uh, There's a lot of debates early on. There's a lot of different directives coming from Moscow that people are supposed to be following in the West um, Mm -hmm. that they're not completely following. It's really not until the the mid-1920s that you can see Moscow now starting to have a full grip on the communist international and parties in the West now having a full understanding of exactly what this relationship with Moscow has to be Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of following the leadership of the common Mm Turn on all
0: points. Mm -hmm. I see. So... uh you, you call this um, early period from you know, roughly 1917 to, uh, I guess, 19, let's say, 20 something, uh, the, the Leninist generation. Right. How, how does that distinguish it from uh, earlier or later generations? <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, what, much of what I'm trying to do with this book, besides showing a comparative analysis of uh, youth movements in the U.S. and Britain, is trying to also show a comparison. Between what I've termed the Leninist generation of 1919 to 1933 versus what I call the Popular Front generation of 1933 to 1945, mm-hmm. um, what's really different about these two generations, particularly if you look at the issue of youth, both of these generations frame their entire worldview based upon issues of war and based upon issues of peace. You know, the mm-hmm. real, real nitty gritty issues that are going to impact young people. Uh, but what's interesting about them is that propaganda is completely different, and their tactics end up becoming completely different. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Leninist generation frames this entire worldview based around the experience of World War I and what they perceived the Russian Revolution was going to bring. They argue that if you brought an end to capitalism internationally, that this would bring an end to imperialism and would bring an end to modern warfare. And therefore, revolution had to be central on the table for all aspects of the politics of the next generation. Uh, Mm -hmm. What switches significantly in 1933 is once you have Adolf Hitler becoming securely in power as communists recognizing that it's not the market economy that's going to cause another world war, it's going to be Nazi fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's interesting to see how these young people react instead of denouncing Western democracies and calling for their overthrow, they start calling for the protection of Western democracies. Mm-hmm. They start calling for international uh, collective security pacts. Uh, mm-hmm. A completely different concept of world politics, but still framed within the venue of war and peace. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see what you mean. Let's, let's come to the popular front in just a moment. I want to ask some uh, boiler sort of... Uh, Basic questions about the the Young Communist League in the 1920s. How large was it in the United States and in Britain?
1: In Britain, at peak periods, you're talking about around a five around 5,000 people, mm-hmm. um, particularly during the periods of the general stri- some of the general strikes uh, going on in 24, 25, and 26. Mm-hmm. Um, in the United States, it's really difficult to tell. I mean, one of the problems in putting this piece together and part of the reason why I focus specifically mm-hmm. on propaganda analysis uh, is the source materials that are available when you're trying to compare the British movement with the American movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of the archives and documents for the British movement are very open. They're very accessible. They're well organized. Uh, during the period of the Cold War, number of American documents were either A, destroyed, or B, sent off to Moscow for safekeeping to mm-hmm. keep people from being prosecuted during mm-hmm. the Cold War. Um, mm-hmm. And many of those documents, they've been becoming more accessible since the 90s, uh, but still very difficult. In many ways, of sort of comparing apples and oranges here. It's difficult to really get to the key Points here of what the numbers are when we talk about the movements. Um, mm-hmm. In all honesty, I, I couldn't even give you a ballpark guess mm-hmm. on specifically how many youth were dealing with the American movement. They kept their numbers, uh, kept many much of the information quite secretive.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, it, but it was mostly um, it, it was concentrated on the East Coast and primarily in New York, wasn't it? Oh,
1: very much so, very much so. It's, it's a movement of. Uh, if you want to talk about the real centers, what you're talking about here is places like New York, Chicago, and Detroit, I, uh, I mean, really having the main brunt here of the youth movement.
0: Uh-huh, I see. So um, was it... Uh now you, you could kind of be arrested in the 1920s for being a communist in the United States, if I recall correctly. Usually it was under the pretext of being a foreigner, having foreign sympathies, or something. I can't remember. Was it the Dawes raids or what, uh, what was the name of them? Yeah, with the, the Palmer raids. Palmer so raids. That's yeah, that's it. yeah, that's exactly right. So maybe you could. Ex- was the was the Young Communist League an above ground organization in the 1920s, or was it was it illegal? Or?
1: It's um, initially with. The Initially, right before the Palmer Raids, you have the first creation of the Young Communist League in the United States. Uh, Technically, at that point, they're above-ground legal organization. What happens after the Palmer Raids is you have the YCL being restructured now as a clandestine underground organization, but also having a front of a legal organization, what they call the Young Workers League. Uh, Mm -hmm. The Young Workers League... uh, in terms of its propaganda, in terms of the way it structured itself, as it tried to avoid, it tried to sort of weave itself through the legal loopholes um, uh, in terms of persecution of communists. Uh, but throughout the 1920s, you also did have an underground movement attached with uh, uh, the Young Communist League throughout the 20s. Technically, it was an underground movement, while the Young Workers League was its legal front in the United States.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what. Um You know, I was in the Cub Scouts when I was young, (laughs) and I got kicked out, actually, because I was uh, not very well behaved. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what being a member of the Young Workers League or the Young Communist League meant for somebody in the 1920s and early 30s. What sort of – what did they do?
1: Well, really, in the 1920s, much of what it's about, particularly for the fact that it's based around areas in New York City – the primary composition of both the American Communist Party and the Uncommunist Movement in the 20s uh, is primarily immigrant groups. Uh, in many ways, it became uh, cultural extensions of uh, culture that happened back in Europe and keep a way of keeping some of these immigrant groups together
2: mm-hmm. in
1: terms of their own political identity. Mm-hmm. Uh, much of what went on during the 20s, though, uh, is mainly focused on battling aspects about racism, uh, dealing with key issues in terms of labor unions. Uh, But also in many ways, uh, there's some real interesting periods towards the end of the 20s where you get young communists trying to organize in the American South, uh, trying to work with farm labor. uh, But it's very much a movement based around the concepts of rooting oneself completely in the politics of labor and trying to essentially restructure labor politics. Into revolutionary initiatives, uh, mm-hmm. much of what the communists are doing during the 1920s is essentially trying to infiltrate different organizations and trying to win them over to a revolutionary position. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. I see. So did they, have, um, did they have camps and seminars and reading groups and that sort of thing?
1: There are a couple of camps. I know that existed in areas of uh, northern New York.
2: Mm-hmm. Um the yeah.
1: uh, the the infamous uh, Camp Wochica, uh where Pete Seeger used to go play oh, right? used to go play all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh it, it's really it's really during the nineteen thirties that you get more of the cultural initiatives um mm-hmm. going on in terms of the youth, uh during this period, much of what the socialist uh, socialist youth are trying to focus on in the 1920s is more cultural initiatives. Uh, the young communists, in many ways, are rejecting the cultural programs of the 1920s, saying that. Uh, the real key to revolution was to focus specifically on labor organizing and revolutionary initiatives. Uh,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We'll see that completely change, though, during the Popular Front. During the Popular Front, we'll see young communists trying to embrace cultural initiatives, embracing things such as camps and recreation for young people.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's actually go ahead and talk about the Popular Front. The Popular Front was, I think most people uh, forget this or just don't know about it. It was kind of a bombshell uh, for the left because uh, (laughs) it um, it was, it was, it, 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 It it initiated a policy which was almost entirely contrary to the one that uh, they had been pursuing um, during the Leninist generation, as you well call it. I like that. So, uh, explain to us what the Popular Front was.
1: (laughs) It's funny, in many ways it seems that uh, historians have had a a bit of an amnesia when it comes to the Popular Front, and uh, in many ways have forgotten to really talk about this period. which is a bit ironic. And one of the reasons why if you think of the politics of the Cold War is that it's really popular front structures that are utilized right after the World War to uh to essentially create communist dictatorships in yep. Eastern Europe. So yep. many people discredited the popular front after that. Uh, but what you see happening almost immediately after the rise of Hitler, you know, really what helped to bring Hitler to power was the fact that all anti fascist parties in Germany at the time didn't get along. They saw the danger of Adolf Hitler, but they also saw danger in each other.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh,
1: for the fact that they hadn't collaborated, this is one of the things that helped spring Hitler into power, even with a minority vote. Uh, mm-hmm. Hypothetically, had the Socialist Party and Communist Party collaborated together, along with, say, the Catholic Center Party in Germany, uh, Hitler's rise to power could have been blocked through a democratic process. Mm-hmm. Uh, So what we're seeing communists starting to identify in the period from 33 into 35 uh, is that the only way – not only is the only way to block fascism domestically is through some type of unity, but that the only way to prevent Hitler – from bringing about a world war is essentially to bring about international unity once again. Uh, in many ways, trying to recreate the old World War One alliances mm-hmm. that existed against Germany. Uh, you know, threaten Hitler with a nightmare war with enemies on all sides, and the argument being that this is a war that he would uh, be crazy to actually start because it's a war they'd be guaranteed to lose if mm-hmm. you could convey firm international alliances. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, it's it's interesting. Essentially, you know, what I tried to look at here. Uh, is how, uh, how the Communist International came to redefine what fascism was. Prior to the adoption of the popular front, uh, pretty much any movement that was anti-communist, the common term, would declare to be fascist. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> they had a real misconception during the 1920s of exactly what fascism entailed. Uh, by redefining fascism here in thir- 1935, what they're really helping to do is helping young people to re- completely restructure their politics, uh, not based now around revolution, but based around anti-fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the rhetoric that they use to justify this is, many many ways, much of the same rhetoric that they've been used to justify the Leninist generation, mm-hmm. embracing issues of war and peace that really impact young people. So it's, uh, it's an incredibly complex time, but incredibly fascinating. Uh, and it's something that's oftentimes forgotten, one of the reasons being – is if you s- studies that look completely at adult movements, they point out something completely correct: is that you have the same people in 1929 calling for international revolution, in the adult movements, now calling for peace and democracy in 1935. And a lot of people saying, "Well, that's complete insincere lying. You're just simply saying that because Moscow has told you to." Uh-huh. If you look at young people and think about young people coming in as new recruits during the 1930s, these aren't the kids left over from the 1920s. There's a whole new, brand new generation. Mm-hmm. They're embracing communism not because of revolutionary initiatives, but because almost completely based around the values of anti-fascism. So, mm-hmm. uh, I think I think there's a real deeper sincerity when it comes to the youth movement, when it comes to the Popular Front.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, So would you say in general that the communist parties and the socialist parties were able to use anti-fascism as a recruitment tool?
1: Oh yes, most definitely. Uh it's, it, it, become, it really becomes the central feature of both communist politics and socialist politics during the 1930s. Uh, you know, the reason why you get the, the, you know, if you look at the American context, why you get the uh, the Pete Seegers and the Woody Guthries uh, coming into the party is into their, their calling for proletarian revolution. It's mm-hmm. because they're calling for anti-fascist movements. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, it becomes a main recruiting tool for both movements. Uh, and it's a bizarre situation that happens between the socialists and the communists uh, because what we'll see the socialists starting to do is becoming far more radical in revolutionary politics and the communists becoming extremely conservative when it mm-hmm. comes to revolutionary politics, essentially switching, switching sides on the far left. Uh. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the other things you point out that I thought was interesting is that um, it seems as if the 1930s was an era in which the socialists and the communists. Um, sort of got religion on the uh, problem of of recruiting and building a base because another thing that they rethink is nationalism. Oh, very much. Uh, um, so. so why don't you talk a little bit about that?
1: <laughs> it, it, I mean, it's it's interesting to think about uh, communists trying to restructure themselves, uh, <laughs> <Yeah>, rebrand re, <laughs> re- re- re-
0: themselves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, right. they did. That's what they
1: did. Right, you know I mean? right. Yeah. It's uh, it, it's quite interesting, uh, particularly. When it comes to the youth movement what we 'll see what we 'll see communist starting to argue is that the main way that fascists had come to power was by manipulating people 's emotions when it came to the issue of nationalism mm-hmm. uh, fascists arguing that they were the party protecting the interests of the nation. Uh, what the communists begin to argue then is that the only way to block fascism is for communists to also embrace nationalism to define themselves as the true patriots of the nation and identifying the fascists as essentially enemies of the nation mm-hmm. uh, so you get some real bizarre twists and turns uh especially in the american movement uh you know by the year nineteen thirty six if you if you're looking at some of the american uh american publications uh you almost never see images of Lenin anymore. Mm-hmm. Lenin has now been replaced by Abraham Lincoln in mm-hmm. <laughs> talking about Lincoln as the great uh hero of mm-hmm. american communists uh, it, it 's a bizarre situation going on here uh, mm-hmm. but completely intriguing
0: mm-hmm. so let 's uh, talk a little bit about uh, this is something i 'm interested in again the uh, the, the kind of c- the cultural initiatives in the 1930s what did, how did the, the communists attempt to uh, recruit and engage young people? And again, I'm talking about you know what, what sort of uh, day-to-day activities did they involve them in?
1: Um, much of what's going on here um, <clears throat> is particularly trying to start utilizing more aspects of popular culture uh, when it comes to jazz, when it comes to swing, uh, particularly for the fact that the nazis had denounced such things as jazz and swing music uh we see the communists essentially trying to pick these up and saying, well if the fascists hate this stuff well this is the stuff we're going to embrace this is what young people want uh what they start doing is describing fascism as a reaction against modernism, and saying that what young communists need to do is embrace all aspects of modern youth culture. So you start having young communists throwing jazz concerts, throwing mm-hmm. swing concerts, uh, using these as fundraisers to help with the Spanish Civil War. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at their publications, you start getting uh, start getting cosmetic tips for young women. Uh, during the midst really? of international uh-huh. crisis, yeah. you're getting makeup tips uh, in young communist publications uh, because they've that this is what being a modern young woman is all about, and this is how communists need to identify themselves. Uh, but particularly things, things such as folk music as well. I mean, what really got me interested in looking at the 1930s and even starting to look at communists uh, is my deep love for the folk music of the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's at this point that you start having folk music also becoming a dominant part of young communist culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the real heroes being people like Pete Seeger, Woody Guthrie, uh, Paul Robeson. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of these great Americans saying becoming the sort of forefront of the communist movement.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, there's, there's a kind of a general tendency to forget that all of these people were socialists. Right. But I but we, we I don't know. We you know, we we shape the past in ways that make us comfortable in the present and it's not <laughs> comfortable to think of Pete Seeger as a socialist, but
1: Oh god, yeah. Well, especially, I, re- I remember, you know, in kindergarten learning this in the song, This Land is your land, this land is my land. I I, I played that in my uh, introductory history courses all the time when uh-huh. I start talking about uh socialism and communism in the twentieth century. I was like, you know, you kids don't even realize it, but you you you're you're raised on a socialist song here. <laughs> I'm like, Yeah, it's yeah, so, I mean, it was, it was an important part of the story of the 1930s uh, with the New Deal coalitions in, in the United States. Uh, when you look at Great Britain, the, some of the coalitions that came together uh, in uh, trying to reframe the uh, reframe the politics of the national government, uh, young communists in Great Britain ironically started to embrace Winston Churchill during the 1930s, uh, somebody they always identified as one of the greatest enemies of the communist movement, but somebody who they now saw is an important anti-fascist.
0: uh uh-huh. And, and a, great internationalist. a <laughs>
1: great internationalist. People forget
0: that about Churchill, too. That He loved international organizations. <laughs> well,
1: well, well, that's going to be one of the, the – uh, we'll talk about this later on, but one of the great struggles that I'm going to have here when it comes to uh, writing the second volume of this book is we see young communists in Britain throughout the 30s uh, saying that if you got rid of uh, Neville Chamberlain and you put Winston Churchill in charge, that they would support then such as British entry into World War II and declaring war on Nazi Germany. It's a real problem then yeah. for the summer of 1940 once Winston Churchill does become the British prime minister uh-huh. and the Soviet Union still not in the war yeah. and uh, Moscow is still saying not to support the war. It's, it's a bizarre story of twists and turns that it become yeah. very awkward.
0: <laughs> yeah, interesting. So, well, let me ask this then. Did it work? That is, uh, we said that the um, communist uh, movement... In both Britain and the United States uh, rebrands itself and rolls out a kind of new strategy to recruit people and it's built on um, anti-fascism on the one hand and um, nationalism of a sort well national pride on the other do you see a marked increase in the number of people participating in communist activities or joining the Communist Party in the 1930s
1: oh yeah most definitely I mean the 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 communists had some real um, had some real boosts in numbers uh, once the Great Depression started taking hold, uh, but really it's once they switch over to the popular front and anti-fascism that the numbers of of the movements in both Britain and the United States really start increasing dramatically. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I would say in terms of their success, though, is not so much – I wouldn't measure their success by the growth of their own movements, uh, but by the relationships and bonds they started forming with other movements. uh, Mm You know, by the end of the 1930s, if you look at the British example, you have the British Young Communist League holding meetings with British Boy Scouts and the YMCA. Uh, (laughs) And the Junior Imperial League is also invited to these meetings. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, they have nothing else in common outside of the fact that they're young people concerned about fascism and World War II. Uh, And I think that's really what I'm trying to argue here is that, you know, we have this great nostalgia about the 1930s and 1940s where we talk – about the quote-unquote greatest generation. Uh, what the movement that really starts bringing together the greatest generation, I would argue, is really rooted in the American and British communist movement. Uh, this, these young people will really start pushing issues of youth unity, and trying to get American and British youth solidly behind positions of anti-fascism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I think that's part of the story that's been completely written out. Uh,
0: yeah, no, I mean, I think you're right about that. I mean, I'm teaching this period right now in a Western Civ class I teach, and I, I do try to emphasize that... Um, Again, I've said this before, but you know the communists and socialists were certainly right about fascism well before anybody else, yeah. and they definitely deserve credit for that fact. And there is a kind of tendency to forget that in our kind of blanket condemnations of the communists for most of the ills of the 20th century. <laughs> yeah. um, we, we do do that, and I guess I've even be, been guilty of that myself. Um, so what? Why do you think that they were ahead of the curve on this issue? Why, why did the communists sense what um, many other parties did not
1: oh, I, I mean something we need to keep in mind when we think about the rise of the Nazi Party or even the fascist party in Italy. The one thing that communists and socialists understood very well was exactly who fascists perceived of as their main opponents. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, when the concentration camps are first opened in nazi germany it 's not for jews it 's for communists mm-hmm. uh, this is you know these are the first people rounded up and targeted by the nazi regime
2: uh, mm-hmm.
1: You know one of the quotes I love to use in my class while I'm explaining fascism there's the old quote from Mussolini <clears throat> where Mussolini as uh, says, "The socialists ask what is our program? Our program is to smash the skulls of the socialists.
2: Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm. I
1: think it puts a pretty easy black and white world view of understanding mm-hmm. exactly what fascism is threatening here. Uh, I think for the fact that the communists were the first ones targeted with the rise of Nazi Germany um made them far more adept. To understanding the nature of this movement and understanding what was needed to try and bring this movement down. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: mm-hmm. I see. How did how did, uh, how did um, relationship, the relationship between um, the the Soviet Communist Party and the uh, Western Communist Party, and particularly their youth movements, develop during the 1930s?
1: Uh, well, it's it's interesting. If you look, the very final meeting of the Communist International is in 1935. Stalin's going to have this organization di- dissolved in 1943. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the final meeting there of the youth movement with the Communist International, uh, young communists are told in very specific language by the leadership, uh, The plans have changed, times have changed, and the Western parties, according to the propaganda with the youth movements, were supposed to be completely independent and reliant on their own resources. Uh, How that worked out in reality is a very different story. Uh, But if you look at simply the rhetoric of the propaganda, what Yamakamiya started to argue in 1935 is that they now have a completely independent relationship from Moscow, have their own independent structures. And... Ironically, you also start getting the American Young Communist League being praised as the greatest leaders of the youth movement throughout the world instead of the mm-hmm. Soviet Young Communist League. Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre situation where now the United States is in the vanguard role of the international movement instead of the Soviets. Uh, it's, it's, it's a real interesting period, but you know, I, in terms of what's going on in reality behind the scenes, it's a very different story, but the way – young people are having the story presented to them through the propaganda is that Western movements are completely independent at this point. Mm-hmm. In reality they're not, of course, but um, this is what's being told to young people. That's part of the reason why I think they're joining in greater numbers.
0: Mm-hmm. Maybe you could talk a little bit about a, a, a fellow that I find um, fascinating, uh, and that is Georgi Dmitriev. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, yeah, he's a very interesting fellow. Um, and and he, played an important, uh, he played an important role in all of this.
1: Oh, very much so. Uh, Dimitrov, it's really quite sad in terms of the history of Dimitrov because Dimitrov simply gets written off uh, because of his relationship with Stalin, his Mm -hmm. relationship with the Soviet regime, and for the fact that he becomes leader of communist Bulgaria after World War II. Mm -hmm. Um, The importance of Dimitrov in the 1930s, though, is absolutely pivotal and vital. Uh, You know, what his real claim to fame is in 1933 – is when the Reichstag fire happens in Berlin, and you have the Reichstag fire trials afterwards. Uh, Georgi Dimitrov is one of the people put on trial, uh, Mm -hmm. and this man refuses legal representation, decides to represent himself. Uh, He ended up winning the case, and the Nazis dropped all charges because every time they put Dimitrov up up to uh, talk about what was going on, is instead of, our, instead of accepting the notion that the communists had started the Reichstag fire and saying, you know, according to the evidence we have, uh, the Nazis started the Reichstag fire themselves. You people are enemies to the German nation and need to be called out on this. Uh, we see the Nazis then dropping all charges and allowing Dmitrov to uh, get out of prison, but he comes to Moscow and he spends the next two years meeting with Stalin, trying to convince Stalin that things have to change. We have to drop this revolutionary stuff And that the main enemy in danger here has got to be identified clearly is Nazi fascism. Mm -hmm. The Nazi fascism is what's going to bring about World War II, which threatens the destruction of the Soviet Union, this threatens the destruction of Western democracies. Threatens the destruction of Jews throughout Europe. Uh, it's another thing to keep in mind the communists also kept issues about anti Semitism at the forefront, uh, warning about the potential dangers of something like the Holocaust mm-hmm. occurring. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's part of their worldview in the 1930s, is trying to prevent both World War II and the Holocaust, but at the same time, trying to bring down Hitler's regime without war. Uh, But Dimitrov Dimitrov is really the the man that helps to completely redefine the communist international uh, and helps to start building these alliances throughout the world in terms of uh, trying to build up the grand alliance internationally, but also domestically trying to encourage young communists to become leaders in their nation. When it comes to anti-fascist politics, instead mm-hmm. of simply revolutionaries on the outskirts of politics.
0: Yeah, he is a, a very—he is a tragic figure in a certain way because he does—he um, does get evaluated in the light of what happened uh, in the late, uh, late in the war and after the war when he becomes right. basically the dictator of right. uh, Bulgaria. <laughs> um, but prior to that, in the, in the 30s, he was really kind of a heroic figure. He was. Right. He was. He was. Uh, he, was, he, was uh, he was right where others were wrong. Right. Um, any association with Stalin is bound to taint you. So right. <laughs> he had no. Rightfully he, so. Yeah, but... he's not going to win. He's not going to win that battle. But he was. He right. was kind of a tragic figure in that way, as he spent the, all of the thirties, as far as I can tell, warning people about Hitler. And, right. And uh, and people didn't take him terribly seriously, including Stalin. I think. Even right. though He did support these uh, anti-fascist policies. Um, maybe you could talk a, a, a little bit now about how the Young Communist League reacted to the various spates of Nazi uh, aggression in the 1930s. Um, That is the taking of the Rhineland and then the Anschluss and then the Sudeten crisis and that kind of thing. Right.
1: Well, really the central point for young communists, um, they're very much concerned about some of the expansion going on in the east, of course, because that means that the Nazis are going towards the Soviet Union. They're Mm -hmm. very much concerned with that. Uh, But really what's framing their worldview is not the centrality of Eastern Europe, but is the Spanish Civil War. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. and, and it really comes down, it's quite interesting to read the way young communists talk about the Spanish Civil War, the way they support it. Uh, one of the main things that they argue with Spain, uh, and unfortunately you know, hindsight's always twenty-twenty, and I think in many ways they're correct on this, uh, is they state that if you get young people from throughout the world to come to Spain, to not only take on Franco, but taking on the Nazis and the Italian fascists there in uh, Spain, that you can destroy fascism there through some type of united movement. That essentially, if you defeat these powers in Spain, It would destroy German war morale, would destroy Italian war morale, Mm -hmm. and the Germans and Italians would throw these guys out by themselves Mm -hmm. and would prevent World War II from happening. But the key is, you have to defeat them in Spain, and you have to keep their armies bogged down in Spain. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you want to start talking about places like the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia, uh, if you look at the timeline on this, uh, As soon as Neville Chamberlain in February of 1939 recognizes Franco's government as legitimate government, what the Germans do is they immediately pull their troops out, send them over to the east, and within a week, invade Czechoslovakia. Had somebody like Neville Chamberlain not recognized Franco's regime and had the international community supported Spain, uh, those German troops would have stayed continued bogged down in Spain mm-hmm. and couldn't start the war in the East. Uh, it's important to keep that in mind. Uh, and young people who came to Spain, you know, young people from throughout the world who didn't necessarily have any affiliation with communism came to Spain because they saw Spain not only as the key to defeat fascism, but to prevent World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, they argue if you take on fascism here, The World War II can be prevented. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we're talking about over 50 million lives are going to be mm-hmm. lost in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's part of the story that completely gets written out here as uh, the centrality of Spain to all
0: young people throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Are there any? Um, fi- I, this is a, a kind of surprise question. You don't have to answer if you don't want. Uh, I just am interested. Are there any kind of famous figures that were in the, uh, the the Young Communist League that we would recognize today who went to Spain or who fought in Spain or who? You know, is there is there anybody any name we could recognize or? If you don't know, you don't
1: know. Not not, not any names. I mean, one one of the great tragedies for volunteers who go to Spain, number one, most of these young people aren't going to come back home. I mean, the experience of being part of the international brigades was absolutely brutal. Uh Um, A lot of these young people aren't Mm -hmm. going to come home. Number two, when they come home to places like the United States for the fact that they've interacted with communists is they now become targets of federal investigations and mm-hmm. harassed. you know, what we dubbed the quote unquote premature anti fascists. So <laughs> you know mm-hmm. you know it's great to be an anti fascist in nineteen forty one, but if you're anti fascist in Barcelona in thirty eight, well it means that you're a communist and in danger. So um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, w wh- I guess a couple of prominent figures in terms of the culture of the Spanish Civil War, uh, you know, once again to come back to the music stuff, uh Paul Robeson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, one of the things that Paul Robeson does, he starts traveling around the world uh, doing fundraisers for young communist leagues uh, that are supporting money to send to Spain. Uh, he also goes after the Spanish Civil War and starts sending to the troops out on the front lines. Uh, somebody like Pete Seeger as well. I'm Pete Seeger in the late 1930s, a member of the American Young Communist League, and also getting involved in some of these mm-hmm. cultural movements. So, mm-hmm.
0: I see. So then let's come to the uh, uh, really kind of crisis Point, or I suspect it was a crisis point. Uh, how, how does the Young Communist League uh, react to the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact?
1: You know, I was waiting for that question. Oh, yeah, well, it's, uh, <laughs> you know,
0: people, people, inquiring minds want to know.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. Well, that's uh, that's that's. There's a reason why the first volume ends off in 1939, while well, the second volume is going to pick up in 1939. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say they react creatively, but quite foolishly in many ways. Uh, It becomes obvious to most people in the West, especially when it comes to the youth movements. You know, the youth movements tried to argue that they were independent from Moscow and this and that and the other. But as soon as the war is declared and declared to be an imperialist war that, you know, according to the Soviets, workers have absolutely no interest in, uh, when the Moscow fingers are snapped, people in the West jump and it's an about-face. What's interesting and important about that, though, is the young communists are actually pretty successful in the way that they frame their rhetoric to try and justify it. If you look at the propaganda of late '39 and early 1940s, it's extremely creative how they're trying to manipulate the worldview of young people who are still involved in this movement. Uh, what they start arguing was that the goal of the Popular Front movement had always been to prevent World War II, that they were willing to go to war, if it was a war in Spain to defeat fascism there, but the goal it always have been to prevent World War II. Uh, what they argue, and they've got some good points on this, uh, is that Britain and France aren't sincere about this war against Adolf Hitler. That uh, You can't trust somebody like Neville Chamberlain to be a leader of anti-fascism because what they argue is that Neville Chamberlain, is a fascist himself in many ways, or at least a dupe of Hitler's foreign policies. Uh, And if you look at the appeasement policies of the 1930s, uh, whether it's selling out Czechoslovakia, whether it's signing uh, the Anglo-German Friendship Pact of 1938, uh, Neville Chamberlain is clearly aligning himself in many ways in terms of foreign policy with Hitler essentially thinking that he can avert World War II, uh, and most young communists, and they they have a good point with that. Can you really trust somebody like Neville Chamberlain to be leading this war? Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, mm-hmm.
1: And it's, I mean, if you look at you know the actual dynamics of what's going on. Uh, You know, people joke around about the early period of the war being the quote-unquote phony war until the war actually opens up on the Western Front. Mm -hmm. Uh, But remember, the war doesn't open up on the Western Front until you get rid of Neville Chamberlain. Mm -hmm. On the same day that uh, Winston Churchill becomes British Prime Minister is the day that the Western Front is open. And that's when it gets really complicated, where I think the story will get fascinating to try and tell how uh, young communists justify this. But uh, essentially what they're arguing is that, you know, Throughout the 1930s, we tried to stop fascism. We tried to prevent World War II, uh, and that the leaders who were in power here at the beginning of World War II were people who had helped support fascism uh, mm-hmm. in many ways, uh, and that they can't be trusted to lead an anti-fascist war. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: mm-hmm. So, I mean,
1: it, I mean, much much of it is Moscow lines getting brought on down here, uh, and it really destroys a lot of the movements in the West, Uh Quite tragically, especially with the American Young Communist League. I mean, some of the connections that they had been making in 38 and 39, in terms of building up their movement, were amazing. Uh, and most of these alliances are going to crumble apart at the end of 39. Mm-hmm.
0: So the Common Turn is disbanded in sometime in the war, correct? Yes, 1940 it's, it's, something, three.
1: It, it, it's in 1943. Um, you know, once. As a real, as a real, you know, part of what Stalin's trying to do in abandoning the common turn there is, uh, you know, trying to get uh, the Western Allies to open up the Western Front. You know, by this point, you know, the Battle of Stalingrad has been won. Uh, the Red Army is on the offensive, pushing out the Nazis out of mm-hmm. Soviet territory. Uh, this is, this is trying to uh, buy, uh, buy an Allied invasion uh, by appeasing the Allies with getting rid of the common turn. So,
0: mm-hmm. And then the Young Communist League is also disbanded in, 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 in during the war, correct?
1: Uh At least nominally. yes yes and no. Uh, in the United States, uh in nineteen forty four, the young communist league uh along with the American Communist Party, uh, particularly after the Tehran conference, what they do is they technically disband themselves and reform as new organizations. The American Young Communist League starts calling itself uh, American Youth for Democracy. Uh, mm-hmm. And the Communist Party starts calling itself uh, the Communist Political Association. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the British context, the British Communist Party, American and British Young Communist League uh, never disband during the war mm-hmm. and actually play a pretty important role after the war in terms of British politics uh, once the Labour Party wins the landslide of 45. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah,
0: let's talk just a little bit, just a bit, go... Uh, kind of very far forward, w- w- was this generation, the, the Popular Front generation, um, uh, significant in later uh, uh, post-war developments? Did, did any of them become um, pl- political leaders themselves?
1: Oh, very much so. I mean, if you, if you look at the, the British movement, uh, you know, the main person who had been in charge of the Young Communist League during the Popular Front era was a young man by the name of John Gallan. Uh, In 1956, after Khrushchev gives this secret speech and the crimes of Stalin are revealed to the world, um, the movement starts falling apart. Uh, John Golan is put in charge of the British Communist Party to try and hold Mm -hmm. this all together, to try and bring some type of reform. Uh, If you look at the American context, Gil Green, who had been head of the Young Communist League, he never becomes... leader of the American Communist Party. Uh, But during the 1980s, during the Gorbachev era, Gil Green comes out as one of the strongest voices supporting Gorbachev, uh, Mm. trying to reform not only the Soviet system, but also trying to reform the American Communist Party. Uh, It's people like Gil Green, Pete Seeger, this old popular front generation Mm -hmm. of youth who come back during the 1980s and essentially try and reform Western communist movements. but also in the British context as well, it's the Popular Front generation that comes back in the 1980s during the Gorbachev era. Um,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking of people like you know kind of the, the, the sort of famous radicals of the 50s. Your uh, you know your Jerry Rubens and Abby Hoffman's <laughs> and were any of these people uh, associated at all with the, or their parents maybe? I, I mean again I'm maybe asking a question which <laughs> you don't really answer to.
1: It, it, that that's 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 a question that I don't have an answer to. Yet. Yeah, am part of part of what I'm hoping to do. Uh, In the future is to write write a larger piece talking about uh, youth politics in the modern era, uh, starting all the way back with the French Revolution, trying to give a history of uh, youth politics, particularly on the left, uh, up to the modern era. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's it.
0: yeah, I was going to say that's a good, that's a it's a it's a great project and a good transition. Um, you know, we've taken up a tremendous amount of your time, and we're very grateful for that. Um, is that going to be your next project then, or what are you working on now? Maybe you could talk about right. that for just a little um, while.
1: Vo- volume number two is in the works. I plan this summer. I'm finishing up the uh, finishing up the manuscript here.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and what are the years for that? How long? That,
1: that's going to be 1939 to 1945. I'm uh, going to right. quit dodging the bullet here and uh, go on those. Uh, nitty-gritty years mm-hmm. of 39 to 41 when we've got the uh the communist movement uh doing it about face on a lot of the uh, popular front issues mm-hmm. and really trying to really becoming in many ways subordinate to uh mm-hmm. subordinate to the soviet policy again mm-hmm. um but i'm hope- hoping that after that i've got two different projects after that you know once i get done with this world war ii piece uh i want to write a larger piece about youth politics in general because mm-hmm. i think youth politics are fascinating uh but I also want to get back to my old love of folk music here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, reading reading about communists and fascists and writing about these people for so many years, I've, I've enjoyed it. But uh, it's a debate where I want to add my two cents and then maybe hop out of the ring. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, much of what's going on with the scholarship, uh, particularly with the American communist movement, um, there's a lot of a lot of ill will and a lot of nasty feelings out there among scholars who study American Communism mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of people really refusing to be very uh, collegial with each other uh, and it's go ahead and, well,
0: you, it. go ahead and talk a little bit about that. I'm interested. Well, I, I'm, not, I'm not running into that myself because I don't study it, but exactly... You
1: know, I, I used to be a member of the H-Net list for the study of American Communism because mm-hmm. I thought it would be a fascinating resource. Uh-huh. What's going on there? Isn't, unfortunately isn't always advancing our scholarship and our research here. What's going on there is a bunch of debates from the Cold War. It's, a, it's the McCarthy era being, uh, being drawn out in the 21st century in uh-huh. digital technology uh, of people attacking the communists and communists on there really being in denial about most things and, you know, huh. still being apologists for Stalin and it's uh, I've, I've, look, I ended up leaving that forum. I had made one comment on there once uh had made some joke about the old 1980s movie, uh, Red Dawn. Oh yeah, <laughs> it Red sarcastic Dawn, yeah. And I had ten people on that list uh, denounce me as a Stalinist for <laughs> making fun of Red Dawn. <laughs> and so I, I quit the list immediately I said, I'm, I make a joke about a dumb uh, Patrick Swayze movie yeah, here, and you call me a Stalinist right. for that? I said, that's it's. It's, it's unfortunately a field of scholarship where there's a lot of great new resources coming available. Uh, yeah. To their credit, you know, two of the more orthodox historians on this issue, uh, John Earl Haynes and Harvey Clare, um, during the 90s, during the 90s after the fall of the Soviet Union, when common turn archives were opened, uh, these two men did a fantastic job of going to Moscow and getting a hold of a whole bunch of documents. That people have been hoping to get a hold of for generations now in Mm -hmm. terms of scholarship. Uh, Unfortunately what's happened with those documents since is they've used those documents essentially as smoking gun ammunition to Mm -hmm. show that the communists were involved in espionage and conspiracy and all these things, which of course is a true part of the story. Uh, Mm -hmm. But people on the left who have wanted to deny that for years and always said the smoking guns exist, uh, are being in complete denial about or uh, essentially entrenching themselves in old Cold War attitudes of uh, standing up for the Soviet Union and the yeah. American left uh, instead of advancing a lot of the debates. Unfortunately, what's happened since the 90s with a lot of this stuff uh, it's people really entrenching themselves uh, and not pushing the scholarship forward and really just being nasty to each other. Uh, yeah. it's, 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 uh, I, I believe in academia. It's important to have open and honest debates. Uh, I think it's okay to call people out on things when you think that they're wrong, but I think academics also need to uh, mind their manners
0: and <laughs> yeah, no, be nice
1: I, to each other. I, I, yeah, I don't I want to write books that people are going to... Uh, attack me and call me a Stalinist for uh, writing a book saying that there was something positive about this movement in the 30s.
0: Yeah, no, I see what you mean. There was a little bit of that, of course, more than a little bit, I guess I would say, in my own field, which is Russian history Uh, in the 1970s and 1980s. It's died down a little bit, although there was a a spate of books which pretended to reveal things that we supposedly did not know about the Soviet Union, (laughs) Um, when, in fact, anybody who was paying any attention knew that we knew them. Right. Um, and I think they sold a lot of copies and made certain people's academic careers, but um, I'm not quite sure they advance the discipline. And I'm thinking of the not just the Annals of Communism series, which is pretty oh, good, yeah. but also, you know, the various black books of you know that uh I, again I, I don't think they really put things in the proper perspective. I, I'm am no supporter of Stalinist communism or any communism really uh but I am a supporter of historical truth and I think those oh, yeah. books those books didn't really advance uh, a, a, a popular understanding of what was going on in the left in the 1930s, 40s and 50s because right. or, they they are so condemnatory
1: it's the, it's the, the the black book of communism I mean when that book first came out i was actually really excited i thought it was an interesting project i thought it was an interesting approach to a number of things uh by the time i got to the fifth page of the introduction i mean i I read the whole thing cover to cover but by the time i got to the fifth page i was like this this isn't advancing the our historical knowledge here and like this is playing out old cold war debates and just being i mean I mean, historians, we need evidence, we need facts, and it's i 'm not saying trying to say that that book doesn't have evidence and facts, but we need to be honest when we have our own twists and turns on how to interpret
2: those facts yeah, uh, yeah.
1: and I guess that 's my real problem with the study of communism in general. I think a lot of people have studied in the past uh haven't been honest about how their own perceptions of these movements influence the way they're interpreting and uh,
2: yeah.
1: I'm trying to add my two cents to the debate and then hop out hoping that mm. somebody else will take up my mantle with uh yeah. studying some more things with the youth
0: but uh yeah well a really interesting point you make and it's a, it's a tough thing to s- study in the sense that uh people can can still get mileage in the press by denouncing people as socialists and communists, right. which is kind of remarkable because there, in America at least, there really are no socialists or communists. I mean, I haven't seen any of them. I mean, I remember when I was in college, you know, occasionally the young Spartacus would hand out uh, leaflets, but you know that was in the dark. That was in the 80s. You know, I mean, these people are gone. But you know, you see people call you know Obama or something a socialist, and I just like, well, obviously you don't have any really understanding of what of uh, What real, you know, kind of a real communist, real socialist uh, movement is? Well, I,
1: a, a few a few months ago, you know, every every once in a while uh, I flip on Glenn Beck just to see how Glenn Beck is handling different things, uh, and he was doing an interview with Sam Webb, who is currently chair of the American Communist Party, mm-hmm. and this Sam Webb started talk, trying to talk about what's going on with the movement, different things. And all Glenn Beck did with the interview was sat there and made fun of Sam yeah. Webb. Mm-hmm. I started bringing up issues about the Nazis, saying that Nazis were socialists, and mm-hmm. that Obama's a socialist, and mm-hmm. that they're all part of the same thing, and telling Sam Webb to go back and read his history to learn that the Nazis were really socialists. Mm-hmm. And it was... It was just ridiculous. Well, not only was yeah. it not advancing anything, but it was just historically ridiculous. Yeah.
0: Well, you know, I used to work actually uh, in in journalism just a little bit. I <laughs> dipped my toes in those waters just uh, uh, just long enough to realize that it was uh, either much too hot or much too cold for me. And I can tell you that the um, the, the iron law, as Marxists might say, of journalistic popularity is that uh you you will become popular and gain an audience if you say something idiotic and stupid or outrageous and i think Mm -hmm. you know uh, we've seen that again and again i mean if someone like glenn beck i don't really watch glenn beck but i kind of know who he is and uh, or your limbaugh's or whoever it or on the left there's a similar sort of thing is that you know saying outrageous things is really what um is what broadcasters want you to do so that they can sell soap on the back of it but Uh, And you know, I'm always wonder like how these people can have any kind of intellectual. uh, It's kind of a stupid question, but how do they sleep at night? You know, (laughs) you go go home and you say these outrageous things, and then and then you have to you kiss your kids and you like tell tell them that you actually did something worthwhile in the world. And but you just, I don't know, it's very confusing to me. (laughs) People will trade almost all of their uh, pride for a little bit of. Public regard. That's one thing I learned in journalism: is that there's there's no. That's an easy bargain for most folks. If you can, you know, sell a million books by saying, you know, uh, Republicans are fascists, then then you you uh, then you'll do it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's too bad, but it's true. I mean, it's sad. It's sad. You know, the state of
1: politics nowadays, and also in many ways reflecting some aspects of the state of these studies in academia. You know, things like this need to be a dialogue where people have respect and it's just, it's it's quite funny to me. You know, know, most of what I study is things with the American and British left, particularly with the communist left. Uh, I think a lot of people would assume that in terms of the classroom then that, you know, it would be a lot of leftist students taking my class and really enjoying them. Uh, Hands down, both to teach at Central Michigan and at Saginaw Valley. uh, you know, the majority of students who come to my class on a regular basis and call me their favorite prof are my most conservative
2: students, yeah, uh, because
1: they're the conservatives kids. who are open to a dialogue, who are fascinated in yeah. learning about this period of history. Even if they don't like the people that they're learning about, they're fascinated yeah. by it. And I'm open and respectful to their ideas, and we keep a dialogue yeah. open. Uh, and it's and it's absolutely fantastic. I think I've had a great experience of uh, advancing my own research uh, in terms of my understanding uh, of ways of bringing this some of this research into the classroom, yeah. and most of the people who have been supportive. Have been my like conservative students. Uh, uh-huh. They're fascinated, fascinated uh, a whole lot by my research here. So. Yeah,
0: no, I, I, you know, I've run into the same thing myself, and I, and I, uh, I don't know what to think about it. I think we should just. But anyway, what, uh, on new books in history, we're all about open dialogue and intelligent conversation. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's good. Well, anyway, Joel Lewis, thank you very much for being on the show. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Marshall. Thanks and uh, and stay in touch. Okay. Yep, you take care. All right, take care. Bye right, bye. You've been listening to an interview with Joel Lewis about his new book, Youth Against Fascism Young Communists in Britain and the United States, 1919 to 1939. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History, and I hope you have a great week. Oh, and don't forget to become a fan of New Books in History on Facebook. Thanks a lot.